You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. We bring you in-depth expertise on international affairs from Stanford's campus straight to you. I'm your host, Michael McFall, the director of the Freeman Spogli Institute. Today we have a special episode. Uh, we're here with Frank Fukuyama, the Olivier Normalini Senior Fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies and many, many other titles which we're not going to go through. And we're going to talk about your trip to Ukraine and my trip to Ukraine as we were both there both, together. Both of us. Yeah. Let's just start, Frank, with you've been following Ukraine, you've been working on Ukraine, you have lots of alums of your various training programs in Ukraine. Uh, the name Fukuyama in Ukraine is a really great one to use. Uh, I work with Frank Fukuyama. That's always a good phrase to and, use. As is the name McFall. Well, uh, well, yeah, we should go on the road, <laughs> Fukuyama McFall. But, but then I think this was your first time there since the war, right? That's right. Like, like myself. So tell us first, what was consistent with what you had been thinking before and what was surprising or different? Uh, I suppose what was surprising was how normal uh, Kiev looked. Uh, people are going to restaurants and nightclubs and driving around and apart from the burned out Russian tanks on display and the soldiers everywhere, you wouldn't necessarily know that it's a nation at war. So in that sense, you know, I, I think they're deliberately trying to cultivate a sense of normality. But I don't know, what was your impression? Definitely the same of the city, mm -hmm. uh, strikingly so. And as you know, it's a beautiful city. It's mm -hmm. a great place to be. And my first dinner there uh, that I got in, I went to a, a kind of not fancy, but new boutique Ukrainian restaurant, and it seemed very normal. I completely agree with that. In addition, not, not different, I was struck in conversations because I had just had more time that was personal about the loss of life and mm -hmm. the tragedy mm -hmm. and the stories of different people, including one of our alums, Andrei Sevchenko, who was a, who was a summer fellow here at CDDRL, uh, Center for Democracy, Development, and Rule of Law. Uh, that Frank, used, I keep saying yeah. here, you used to run it. Uh, mm -hmm. Catherine Stoner now runs it. I can't remember, was he here when you were running yeah. it? Yeah, mm -hmm. you, so you know him well. And just you know him telling me the story of how his brother was killed, mm -hmm. that makes it much more personal than just reading the numbers. So that was something I felt more palpably being there than before. Mm -hmm. Now, you had some great meetings. You met with Zelensky and you met with your sanctions committee. Uh, how did you gauge the mood of, you know, Zelensky and people at that level or uh, Andre Yermak, his chief of staff? Yeah, uh, I met with Yermak. I even did a public talk with Yermak mm -hmm. at one of the universities. and. I met the foreign minister, I met the defense minister, mm -hmm. uh, many other folks, many of I've known for a long time. I was struck by two things with the government meetings, including some of our parliamentary friends, people, MPs. You know, their conviction, their sense of purpose, they see victory as being liberating their territory, and there's no, there's no gray area, at least talking to me. I also met you know, people doing really inspirational things, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. I met the the deputy minister in charge of European integration, for instance, who I kind of knew before I met her, uh, I'd met, but this was a first in-depth conversation. Yeah, she's very her. impressive. Yeah, and oh. she was at our conference. You mm -hmm. saw her, right? Mm -hmm. And her notion that, you know, full steam ahead to European integration. We're not waiting. And mm -hmm. um, you may remember at the YES conference that we were at, one somebody from the floor, a European government official, said, 
after the war is over, you will begin reforms. And she said, no, uh, mm -hmm. we're, we're forming now. We're not stopping. Mm -hmm. That was impressive to me. Yeah. And same with civil society, right? And, and parliament. They're critical, but they're also committed to a common struggle. They're not... I didn't, I didn't sense... Uh, you know, defeatism at all. Mm -hmm. I don't know, what which was your impression on that part as well? Well, we can get to that because I'm a little bit worried about the situation on the ground. Certainly nobody well, expressed, yes. expressed any, you know, defeatism. I'm curious about your sanctions meeting because you've oh, been running the sanctions Yeah, I didn't talk and, about and, that. And you met with uh, Zelensky on that specifically. And as I saw from the discussion, he made a special appeal they're expecting the Russians are storing up missiles. They're going to attack yes. the electrical grid over the winter when yes. it gets cold. And he's very worried about that. He was. And um, I'm glad you brought that up. I would say that's when he got most passionate in my conversation with him, mm -hmm. which was, you know, this is one of the many fronts of, of trying to defeat the Russians. And the, the goal of sanctions is to speed the end of the war as fast as possible. And, and I want to be clear, the, the world has done some important things on sanctions. We can go through that list. And I think our study group, our working group, has helped to push the uh, imagination. They've done some things today that people say were impossible a year and a half ago. But you got to keep pushing. And his, his frustration was a sense of kind of malaise and the notion that not more can be done, and he knows that more can be done, and of the loopholes in the sanctions regime, particularly about technologies. And we published a couple papers uh, documenting this. We have some fantastic data that, that our Ukrainian colleagues found. And it's just very clear that places like Hong Kong and, and Kazakhstan and uh, Belarus and Georgia are being used as intermediaries to bring Western technology into Russia that then helps them build rockets to kill Ukrainians. And his argument to me was, look, you're allowing thousands of dollars to be made by these companies in, in Europe, but mostly the United States, that then you spend hundreds of thousands of dollars with your Patriot missiles to shoot down the rockets that they're building. Mm -hmm. This is illogical. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think he's right. I mean, it is hard to control technology. You, you know that better than I, but that was where I, that was the, the place in the conversation that I heard the most frustration in mm -hmm. his voice. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> it's actually that economic trade-off on the defense systems that really started me thinking and, and really worrying about the situation because <clears throat> a Patriot missile costs many times as much as the missiles that they're shooting down. Exactly. And uh, it's not a sustainable uh, situation. And you know, my assumption over at the beginning of the counteroffensive had been that if they can really threaten Crimea, then you might get Putin in a position where he's so worried about losing it that he might be willing to, you know, talk about some kind of a ceasefire right. and, and take some of the pressure off of uh, Kiev. And I think the Ukrainians are doing what they can to take the war to Crimea. So as I understand it, a lot of the Black Sea fleet now has left Sevastopol yes, and they've quite gone, gone off to other ports because the Ukrainians have been quite uh, successful at striking that. But the thing that really started to worry me is what if the Russians actually, even if they lose Crimea, what if they don't stop? Yeah. What if they keep shooting missiles? And, yes. Uh, it becomes a, a losing proposition to think that the West can continue to supply all these right. expensive air defense systems. We're already in a situation where the Republicans seem to be now in 
increasingly full of right. revolt against that. And that's when it struck me that, you know, the Ukrainians have kind of realized that unless they can take the war to Russia itself, yes. uh, you know, the sanctions are fine if you can put pressure on them, but that's not going to stop them from right. doing it. Yeah. Uh, and so they're actually beginning to attack targets in Russia. I'm sure we're freaking out about this, but I wonder whether it's not going to come to that at some point. Well, I think you're right, Frank. I mean, I, I again, I'm not a military expert, but I listen to them often, as you do too, and as we did at, in Kiev. It doesn't seem sustainable that you use very expensive interceptors to take out very cheap uh, drones. The, the good news on that is I heard, and I even went to one drone factory, by the way, on this trip, there is innovation going on inside Ukraine because they understand this too. And they, you know, the Black Sea fleet attacks have had these pretty incredible results. Without a Navy, they're getting the Russian Navy to leave, but they've got a long ways to go. That's, mm -hmm. it's, it's felt to me, talking to people, that this is not, it hasn't scaled yet. And so I do think you're onto something, that they have to change the dynamics and attacking Crimea, I mean, I think you were arguing that a long time ago, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. So I think they are doing that now. But what happens inside Russia? Obviously, there are more attacks than there were before. It makes people nervous. But uh, in the West, uh, mm -hmm. and I suspect in the Biden administration, I don't suspect, I know. But what choice do they have? Like, they, yeah. they've got to do something. Yeah, I think that's a choice that uh, we're going to be facing, whether to support that sort of thing. What was your sense uh, there? Uh, there are a lot of Europeans and other Americans about, you know, the prospects for NATO. There's going to be a NATO summit coming up in Washington uh, next year. Uh, how do you think things stand in that front? Well, what I want and what I th predict are probably two different things. What I think should happen is in the wa at the Washington summit, NATO should invite Ukraine to join and issue a formal invitation. Why well, worry? Remember, you know, despite all the propaganda that Putin and his supporters said, NATO expansion uh, was stuck since 2008. Right. I was in the government for five years after 2008. Mm -hmm. I can tell you definitively that there was no push from us or any other European country for Georgia or Ukraine. It was stuck. Putin achieved his goals by invading Georgia, he stopped that momentum. We need to say that honestly and stop pretending that we have been working this issue and the Biden administration didn't either, right? So it's been a long time and they only got incrementally better at the last summit. I think they need in Washington to do that. But there is a difference between issuing an invitation and membership. And that process typically takes two years. With Ukraine, it could take longer. I think that, and that's fine. I just think you need the signal that it's not a question of if, but when. And Putin needs to know that mm -hmm, too. Mm -hmm. Putin needs to know that this is not something he's gonna be able to stop. Yeah. But you, that, that's my position. Okay. My prediction is same as it ever was and just another kind of incrementalism because my sense is that it has to do with our domestic politics. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. the idea that Biden would announce this and if Mr. Trump is the candidate in the summertime and he would say, you see, I'm the one that kept us out of wars. President Biden, he probably wouldn't be that polite. He'd probably say Joe Biden uh, is the one to drag us in. So yeah. tragically, I think our domestic politics 
will get in the way. Well, it's not just our domestic politics. Yeah. I mean, the, the position of a lot of the European NATO allies is that, yes, we want Ukraine in, but only when the war is over. Right. And, you know, that's basically an invitation to Putin to keep the war going. Right. And he can do that just by lobbing more and more missiles into Literally forever. Uh, Ukraine. Yeah. And the war will never end. Uh, and therefore, the invitation will never come. And so yeah. they've gotten out. Uh, and that's another reason why I think actually that missile issue is really important. Yeah, and good point. What, what is it going to take to get the Russians to stop that? Uh, right. Tell me what you thought about just in general at the conference we were at, the, the Europeans versus the Americans versus Ukrainians. I know that's a big question, but like you say, there were lots of mm -hmm. interesting people from all over Europe. Any takeaways from that, like wh how the uh, debates are different? Yeah, I'm not as worried about Europe as I was previously, uh -huh. um, mostly because of France. I think that, you know, earlier in the summer, Macron really just realized that trying to reach out to Putin was just a hopeless task. Right. And he kind of flipped on that. And right. And he had been one of the big people pushing to somehow include them in a broader right. Europeans. Uh, and, and in fact, you know, he's now taken a little bit more forward a position than the Biden administration. That's so, right. Uh, that's encouraging. Uh, I guess, you know, this is not something that came up necessarily at the conference, but there's just a big problem now in Eastern Europe because of the, the farmers and the grain situation yes. where right. uh, a lot of uh, Polish, Romanian farmers have seen their prices drop because of all the Ukrainian grain. And again, right. this is directly due to the Russians targeting their exactly. ability to yeah. export this stuff. <laughs> Polish election is coming up. Farmers are really mad. and. Poland, which has been one of the biggest supporters of Ukraine, is now saying some kind of pretty nasty things about Ukraine because yeah. of this uh, issue. And so there's a lot of complicated politics here that unfortunately is going to, I think, weaken the, you know, the very solid front that existed in NATO previously. Right. And the tragedy, of course, is that because Ukraine is efficient in its agricultural uh, production, which is what we all want, uh, they're being punished because of the inefficient farming industry in these countries. Yeah, I, I was struck by that. I had not been following that debate as closely as I should, and I, I did not appreciate all politics are local, and that most certainly yeah. is there. C can I ask you one other question back to the war? Is there a scenario just tell me about counteroffensives, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody talked about the counteroffensive. One of my takeaways is that the Ukrainians are planning for many counteroffensives. Is that viable given the politics we were just talking about? And with a better armed air with air support, could we see a different outcome in a counteroffensive had they had, you know, next year or the year after? Well, I hope it won't uh, be delayed until next year or the year after. I think that, you know, the Ukrainians have done as best they could given the fact that they weren't given F-16s, they right. weren't given ATACMs. We had this, I thought, very dispiriting and stupid set of criticisms of them over the summer, saying that they weren't using NATO doctrine, they weren't concentrating yes. their forces. There. Yes. You know, NATO has never operated without air superiority. That's, yes. that's their doctrine. And well, we weren't willing point. to allow them to, to get air superiority. And right. so they had to revert to whatever they could do, which was, you know, using right. artillery and infantry. I think uh, General Budiansky, the intelligence chief, spoke at the conference. And it was interesting because people said, well, you know, you're going to slow down once it starts raining and it gets cold. And he said, no, 
Right. And I think that uh, is because they've actually discovered that the armor, all this heavy armor, the Leopard tanks and the M1 Abrams, are actually not that useful because the technology has changed with the use of these small drones. You can see everything now Interesting. on the modern battlefield. Interesting. And then you can destroy anything Big that's targets out there. like that. And so, as a result, you know, what they have to do is they send sappers out, uh, infantry, you know, to clear mines. What are mine. sappers? Well, they, they're right. infantry that clear mines, and they okay. do it by hand. Very dangerous, you know, work. Wow. In fact, the son of, uh, son-in-law of, of one of our Sipe friends was, was actually training as a sapper. At that, wow. at that moment. That does sound uh, really dangerous. But it does mean that the uh, counteroffensive does not have to stop just because the tanks will get bogged down in the mud because... They're actually you know, not using... Yeah, they're not using Interesting. tanks. Interesting. I didn't know that. They're using, you know, artillery and uh, infantry, so the fighting could actually go on at a fairly high level all winter. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know, we'll have to see. I do think that there's still a possibility that if they can get past you know, the second and third lines, then, you know, the whole position of the Russians may Could start collapse. to collapse. Right. But, uh, you know, they're not there yet. They're so not there yet. It's a very, very um, tricky and worrisome situation. Right. And they're running against this American clock of our election. And Well, let's come back to that. Like, tell us how you read the American clock, both the drama that we're witnessing today with the House and yeah. the longer term. I would say that in the short run, you know, because there actually is a bipartisan majority of members of Congress that actually want to support Ukraine, right. that they're going to figure out, you know, uh, past the McCarthy's leaving the speakership, how to get another aid bill in. But I do think that once you get into next year and the election campaign, it's going to be hard to certainly to increase that that level of support because Trump will be out there Trump talking will be out and there. nobody and every other Republican now has kind of taken this up except for Nikki Haley a couple of people that are never going to be the candidate right uh, so uh, I do think that there is an American time clock unfortunately that's ticking uh, working that's hard to hear. Um, <laughs> Tell us a little bit about some of the people you saw that have been fellows at Stanford and, and also in your site programs. Uh, yeah, what was the well, mood of uh, those kind of you Well, know, actually, you're you the one that, well. that met with all of them. But we yeah, I mean, I think they're tired. Here. I think they're tired. Yes. You know, there's a lot of issues that I discussed with several of them. For example, the election. You know, should there be an election in Ukraine? I think right. almost everybody thinks it's a bad idea. Yeah. I heard the same. Yeah, I heard the same. There are 8 million Ukrainians out of the country. There's right. a million of them in the armed forces. The condition, just technically registering all those people and getting them to vote is, is going to be an insuperable right. problem. It's going to be a huge distraction in the middle of an existential right. you know, fight for survival. But in general, you know, I, I think that so many people have lost relatives, friends, have people at the front that are actively fighting and they just are really angry exactly. and they're really not in any kind of mood to compromise. Yeah. Uh, you that's know, what I, I didn't see is any kind of war weariness saying, you know, okay, maybe we really need to think about stopping. Yeah. Frank, I guess that was probably my even my biggest takeaway, which which I did can't feel in Zoom calls and email, which is People are tired. I've met. I mean, people are worn out, and they're working hard. And and you know, some of the domestic politics stuff of you know the president's office being too strong and all that. That's kind of that was greater than I had anticipated. But the main thing was exactly what you said. After you've lost so much, you want to just keep fighting. You don't want to 
you don't want to negotiate with these people. Mm -hmm. And I'm using the word people, Russians, uh, that's a very diplomatic word. That was not a word <laughs> used many times. Yeah. And, and I think that is hard for outsiders to understand, right? We're, we're thinking about it in the abstract. You know, there's so many people in America talking about, well, we just need peace. You know, they just need peace. And uh, there's two things that they don't get about that. One, after you've lost your loved ones and you've lost so much, the idea of negotiating with them, they're angry. The other part, of course, is they completely leave out of the equation. It takes two to tango. Putin doesn't want to talk. Uh, he's, it's clear. I've listened to Putin, so you don't have to. <laughs> and, and everybody else doesn't have to. I've been listening to him for a long time, for many decades. And the people around him, you know, they think that time is on their side. And uh, especially before our presidential election, mm -hmm. there's just no opportunity to have a peace accord or a ceasefire. And that, that I think I wish more Americans understood. Yeah, I actually think that the 2024 presidential election in the US is gonna be one of the most important elections in our history. Yes. Uh, and world history could go in very, very different directions depending on the way that that one goes. Uh, well, on that profound note, uh, we're gonna do two things. Uh, first, thanks for being here today, Frank. And let's talk about that topic the next time we have you on World Class. Okay. And let's keep talking about Ukraine, of course, because these things are interrelated. So thanks for being here. Okay. Thank you, Mike. You've been listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe to Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date on what's happening in the world and why.